For two days, one man's life was in continuous jeopardy. For two days, he spent a night in terror as the wind tore at him, threatening to pull him from the sheer rock face. But he was there on purpose. (laughs) He was attempting the first solo free climb of its kind ever. No ropes, no one to help. (laughs) Okay, Just he and more than 2,000 feet of vertical granite. The days of harrowing effort, a windy night of fear, and enormous physical exertion. And when he finally pulled himself to the top, he did it. His wife was there to greet him. (laughs) News teams from all over the world peppered him with questions. Hundreds of people cheered for him. Uh, Why? (laughs) What's going on? Well, obviously, how you get there makes a difference. (laughs) From where you come says a lot about the journey that you make. Haftum in Yosemite National Park is one of the most popular sites and hiking locations in the world. It was first seen and made famous by John Muir in the 1860s. It was declared perfectly inaccessible. No way. Perfectly inaccessible in 1870. No way anybody is ever going to get to the top of that thing. Well, you guessed it. Five years later, (laughs) 1875, the first ascent by George Anderson. He didn't go up that sheer northwest face. He came at it from the easier, that is to say, only fantastically difficult, southern side. How did he do it? He used a hand-operated drill to put holes in the smooth granite, very smooth, and then he placed handmade eye bolts that he had made ahead of time into every hole. Literally, it took him a long time. In modern times, as many as 1,200 hikers per day have climbed to the top. Look at that. It's like a traffic jam. And they used almost exactly the same route. This is the final 400 feet. It's called the cable route. It was constructed in 1919. It is very steep and requires significant effort. Actually, a few people have died from heart attacks while attempting it. So it's it's a climb. The uh, the route is now technically it's fairly easy. Just hang on, <laughs> climb your way up. Uh, you can actually leave your car in the morning and be back in time to drive to a restaurant for dinner that night. Literally, you can do it that quickly now. It's quite a change. But there is some danger. On June sixteenth, two thousand seven, Kurafumi Nohara was getting impatient, and he tried to cut around the people that were on the cable. He thought they were too slow. He decided to cut around them. He slipped, and he fell 300 feet to his death. Two years in a row, actually, that someone died climbing Half Dome like that. In 2009, another death. In 2011, two more. One fell off the face and plunged 4,000 
feet before meeting his end. A lot of time to think. Between 1971 and now, 12 have fallen from Half Dome and died. So still, it's probably safer than driving your car to Yosemite, <laughs> but still, it's dangerous. On June 27, 1985, five were struck by lightning up there. Two of them died. Well, of course, they were warned not to go because the storm was obviously descending on the mountain and it was a really bad idea. But they'd come halfway around the world and they were not going to miss their chance to make this once-in-a-lifetime climb. You know, why do people do this? <laughs> what do they want so badly that, to climb up Half Dome? Why is it? This is it. Wow. <laughs> I would pay big money <laughs> to be able to get there. Wow. Below that man is that 4,000 feet, by the way, in case you were wondering. <laughs> they want to see this view. They want to be there. They want to be a part of what this is. Even with the danger, it's worth it. In one day, with moderate effort, you can see this. Take a moment, you know, breathe it in. This is great stuff. I mean, you're not there, so you don't have to worry about falling. <laughs> it's an incredible view and an amazing accomplishment. But do note that sheer face. <laughs> the route that most take to get there starts two miles from the summit, but there is another way that you can climb to the top. Straight up the northwest face. Straight up it. The easy side was first climbed in 1875, like we said. It was 77 years before the sheer face was successfully climbed. 77 years. The first modern technical route was achieved in 1957. It took a three-man team five full days to find a way to make that ascent that so many had failed to do before them. I mean, many, many, many people have tried. In 1966, about a hundred years after George Muir discovered the place, the North Face was first climbed in one day, one day, using routes, of course, that were established by the earlier climbers. The next year, Liz Robbins, climbing with her husband, Royal, becomes the first woman to conquer the Northwest Face. Remember that first solo climb, the one we... Talked about the beginning, 2008, 138 years after the mountain, the climbers called the mountain perfectly inaccessible. That's how long it took to do that. Where you start and the path you took to get where you are make all the difference in the world. <laughs> where were we before we believed, before we were Christians, before we followed Christ? And how did we get to where we are? From where did we come? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay. <laughs> you know, have you ever been at rock bottom? The absolute basement of life the bottom of the barrel, where there's nowhere to go but up. Paul wanted to remind the Ephesian believers that that's where they were 
so low that they had to reach up to touch bottom, you know. <laughs> this is about where they were walking. Where were they walking? And you were dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. You ever heard someone say, I know you Christians think that everybody is basically good, but... <laughs> It's amazing how they could get it so exactly wrong. I mean, the scriptures are, are clear as a bell. The, the course of this world is that of death, not life. And every human being starts there. I think the good news about our country going so bad is that Christians may finally stop thinking it's okay to be like the world. That, that's, I think, the best thing in this whole but that brings us to a tough question. Why does the world, that is to say the people in it, invariably end up walking in death? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. <laughs> Listen to some instruction Paul gave to young Pastor Timothy. First to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's Timothy's part. Now to his opponents. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This world follows Satan. As that songwriter said, you gotta love, you gotta serve somebody. He also said love, but you gotta serve somebody. Every person not granted repentance is snared by Satan. Everyone. What, me? No way, I'm my own man. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Want to hear what Jesus told his opponents? You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, hey, I don't, I don't do things all that bad. Okay, maybe not, but you would. Given enough time, every one of us would do terrible, unspeakable things. You don't shoot the messenger. I'm just, I'm just telling you what Scripture says. That great danger in thinking we live in a Christian nation. Who do you emulate? If everybody's Christian, if all our leaders are following God and not captured by Satan to do his will, shouldn't we not live like, that is to say, follow their behavior? Shouldn't we copy the athletes and actors and anyone else famous if everybody's Christian? Not if they are like every other unrepentant human on the planet. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
The end of sin is death. Our tendency was that of the world. This whole world is in trouble. We tend toward disobedience. Sons of, by the way, is often used as an expression meaning people like. Jesus did call the Pharisees sons of the devil. (laughs) They were dead like the rest of the world. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what our walk was, (laughs) thank you, Jesus, Our very nature, the core of our very being, who we are, was that which results in that self-serving, fulfill-our-own-desires behavior that can end in nothing but wrath from God. Even the Ephesian Christians, even Paul, used to live selfishly after their own passions. Body and mind, did you catch that? And because of that, they deserved God's wrath. And what is the end result of our selfish actions? Well, death, of course. But each person, James wrote, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We've said it here more than a few times, but it bears repeating. Death is separation. When one dies physically, their spirit is separated from their body. If one is dead spiritually, they are separated from God's grace. Leon Morris, in his book, The Atonement, Its Meaning and Significance, or entitled, but it's a good book, he gives this illustration. This dad is in the park with his little boy. The boy wants to get into the pond. Uh, this pond is well populated with waterfowl, uh, with emphasis on the fowl. <laughs> you talk about pond scum. <laughs> you guys are really gross. The boy doesn't care about that, doesn't really believe this whole germ theory anyway. <laughs> Who made that thing up? He wants in the water. But his dad is a good dad who will not let him fulfill his desire. The boy won't trust his father. He won't trust that he knows things that he doesn't know and that he's seeking to protect him from harm. The boy has a desire and he wants it fulfilled no matter what his dad says or wants. It's pretty easy to see that their fellowship will be strained because the boy will not give up on his desire, which his father knows is bad. Their relationship will improve once the boy stops his wrong behavior, repents, and renews his trust in his father. Repentance leads to reconciliation, and we need to be reconciled to God. He did. Part of that process is the propitiation of God's anger. God's anger has to be appeased. Our little illustration doesn't quite cover all the bases. What of the pain sin causes? Are evil desires fulfilled? 
you know, consider murder and thefts and lies and cheating and deceit <laughs> or horrible things like rape and incest. Oh, those are terrible. We should be angry about them. Newsflash, every sin causes pain. Every sin. Can any good person not be angry at these things? Really, if you're good, do you, should you not be angry? Can a good God not be angry? Later in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul will return to the subject of God's wrath. He gives a pretty thorough list of uh, sins. <laughs> and then he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So let's consider the Scripture's teaching as to the wrath of God towards sin. The Old Testament has nearly 600 references to God's anger. Almost 600. More than 20 different words in Hebrew are used to describe God's anger. Wow. But 10 times he is said to be slow to anger. God doesn't want to be angry with his creatures. And sin, in all those cases, is always the cause of God's wrath. Always. All, almost 600 times. Always. Somehow, God's anger has to be appeased. And that word is propitiation. We don't use that word much here in America or even the concept of it, but it's in common use in many parts of the world. In Japan, this is actually true, there was a motor scooter driver who was run into by a bicyclist. The bicyclist was badly injured. Now, over here, we'd say, well, it's his fault, and we'd be done with the matter, right? That's it. But they don't have the same ideas over there. The rules are that the heaviest vehicle is always responsible to avoid an accident with the lighter vehicle. That's the rules in Japan. That's the law. Even though this bicyclist was careening down a hill he should have never been on at a speed that made it impossible for him to stop, the law required that the scooter driver that he ran into make propitiation for the damage done to the cyclist. Propitiation. Propitiation was a common idea for the Greek-speaking people at that time. Of course, their gods always needed appeasement. They always had to do something for them. The rulers, <laughs> yeah, you need to make appeasement to them if you make them unhappy. Rich people needed to be appeased by the poor people. I mean, they were used to propitiation. Now, maybe man-made gods and other people, they might possibly be appeased by man's actions. But what about the real, holy, perfect God? <laughs> How can the wrath of the true God against the horrors of sin be appeased? To say it another way, how can we go from walking like the world, that is to say, in death, to walking in life? Well, only by the sacrifice of the one God-man. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Why were we rescued? Because God is rich in mercy and loved us greatly. Okay? That's why. By grace we have been saved. Grace, according to the dictionary, mercy, clemency, pardon, the freely given, unmerited favor and love of our God. Why did God have mercy on us? Because of His love. Because of His love, our sins were forgiven in the one God-man. In the one God-man, our spirits no longer walk in death, but now walk in life. And Paul can't stop. <laughs> A little excited. He goes on to show the extent of this mercy and love, how very far it reaches. But God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I told you he got excited. We are positionally with God already raised with Christ. But of course, we haven't yet died, so how can we be actually raised with Christ? Paul is looking forward here. He's speaking as if the future has already occurred. Authors today use this literary technique to show the surety of something. This is going to happen. Paul uses it to show the surety of our salvation, what we called redemption surety just a few weeks ago. And since... It is God who makes us alive together with Christ. We can be sure <laughs> this is going to happen. It's going to happen. We will be with Paul and the Ephesian saints in heavenly places. With Christ and in Christ. Why would he do this wonderful thing? <laughs> to show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in the coming ages. Our future, that is to say our eternal walk, is going to be amazing. <laughs> Eternally, the immeasurable riches of His grace will be showered on us in kindness toward us. Eternally. Oh, it's crazy. How can you believe such drivel? You folks are complete Pollyannas. Anybody ever said those kind of things to you? You're throwing away your chance to have fun in the only life you get for some pie-in-the-sky future hope that you won't get until you're dead. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. <laughs> they think we are... Fools to throw away our lives in the belief that Jesus rose from the dead and one day God will raise us and bring us up to live with Jesus. They think we're fools. But we know. <laughs> the word of the cross is the power of God displayed. Forever we will be both a trophy of His grace and recipients of His grace. But how does it actually happen? <laughs> we need a description of how we went from walking in death to walking in life. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Have you ever met someone who is proud of their intelligent choice to follow God? <laughs> Let's think about it this way. When that, man, when that man reached the top of Half Dome in 2008, why wasn't he cheering for all those people who were, after all, there before him? <laughs> why didn't he cheer for them? Well, they took the easy route. Why would anybody cheer for that, Right? Right. But think, we didn't reach the top by the hard way. We didn't even make the day hike up via the cable route. Okay, We just took a helicopter ride and simply stepped out onto that glorious summit all because of the work of other people. That's it. That's what we did. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked and were raised up with him made alive with and in Christ. It was a gift of God. So let us be humble and let us be grateful. Our future is glorious life. No more walking in sin. That actually does happen. <laughs> Why? Well, this is the second time Paul has said it. By grace, you have been saved. Our future is wonderful. I can't wait to get there. But we're not there yet. <laughs> Still here. Where do we walk now? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. His workmanship and our good works. We walk in the work that He has prepared for us. Yes, and in case you wonder, even the works. Uh, yeah, He set those up ahead of time too. He, he didn't just choose us ahead of time. He actually set up our works ahead of time as well. Then all we got to do is do them. That's it. That's all. We don't have to go out looking for work. He's already set it up. In fact, he already brought us to the work site and set us right there in front of the work. That's it. <laughs> the entire Experiencing God, that book, the, that, the entire book can be summed up in the one statement. Find out what God is doing and join him in it. You don't need to buy the book. That's all you need to know is that. <laughs> Find out what God is doing and join him in it. That's the whole point. You want to experience in God? That's it. Do the work that He prepared for you ahead of time. There's nothing else. Wherever we are, we just start working. And we can be doing God's work. That's it. Yes, we should think, and yes, we should plan, and obviously those are true, but, but it is never all that hard to find work to do for God. Whatever we are doing. Are you mowing your lawn? Is that not a work for God? Isn't it? I've driven by some houses. I always want to know, wow, that is so nice. I wonder if they believe in God. Why else would you take that much time to make your yard? Well, maybe they're trying to brag, but 
you know, you're fishing, you're whatever. I used to did. I used to be in the middle of the night in businesses working on computer systems. It's really hard to see God in a computer system. I don't know if you know that, but they're brain dead, stupid zero and one machines, and it's just what in the world? The world cannot be improved faster than to get rid of every computer. I'm convinced of it. I spent 30 years working on those stupid things. And I was working for God? Well, yeah, if I had the right attitude, maybe. <laughs> where did we start? From, from where did we start? We were dead. We toddled after Satan like the rest of the world, intent in our disobedience, and horribly tied to our sin. The course of this world. We walked in the passions of our own desires, not those of God. But God he is rich in mercy. He greatly loved us. And he made us alive together with Christ. The culmination of our walk is in heavenly places. <laughs> in Christ Jesus. We will be both trophies of and recipients of the richness of his in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is by grace alone we have been saved. We didn't go out and get it. It's a gift of God's. We didn't work for it, so there's no point in bragging about it. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let us now, in humble gratitude, do the work that he has prepared for us. Let's pray. Father, the more we read, the more we understand of you, and the more we understand of ourselves, why would you ever love us? <laughs> it seems like the longer we live, the more things we mess up. And the more your grace is poured on us. Why do you love us, Lord? Why do you keep forgiving us over and over again? Some of these sins we just can't seem to let die. <laughs> They're supposed to be dead, but they keep coming back and we keep failing. And you keep pouring out your love. It's okay, my son paid for that. Ouch. We recognize that your son paid. And the anger that you feel and felt, had to feel towards our sins was appeased in your Son. You poured it all out. All of your wrath was poured on your own Son so that we would not feel your wrath. And for some reason, you chose us and you loved us and you draw us. Help us to do the work that you put in front of us. If it's nothing more than saying hi to somebody, I don't know what we'll do for you. Whatever it is we're doing, Lord, let it be for you. And we know that'll be enough. 
thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.